There we go. Now I got it going. All right. We, um, it's the last of our Ten Commandments here. Thou shalt not covet thy neighbor's house, shalt not cover thy neighbor's wife, nor his manservant, nor his maidservant, nor his ox, nor his donkey, nor anything that is thy neighbor's. Amen. You can be seated. We done prayed a second ago. Jacob, if you could bring me a, gla- a bottle of water, I'd appreciate it. Hopefully there's some more in there. But on this last Sunday, it's us, and we are going to uh, finish out this series I have been doing on the Ten Commandments. And um, let me go, well, I'll go through them here in a second. But I have enjoyed the book. If you um, have not read the book, you can get it on Kindle or you can get the well, you can borrow my copy if you want to read it bad enough now. I'm done with the book. I've, I have literally read it twice uh, this year. I finished it up totally and completely um, this week. And um, it's called Ten Words. It's very good. But in our modern time, we go to, you know, the Scripture where so what is the greatest commandments, and, and the Lord gives us the good condensed version of it you know have no other god before you you know love him with all your heart soul strength and mind and then love your neighbors itself which is good we need that but i've really enjoyed going through this just to kind of dig down and and see how what each of these mean because by and large if we'll treat our neighbor love them like we should and we'll love god like we should we'll keep all these commandments in our modern time it seems like is so blurred of what is right the way you treat people or what is the right way to love God that I think it's been good going through these things. And, and this has been one of our, um, on the podcast, this is one a lot of people, it looks like outside our church, have been going to and listening to. It's been, so with that said, we look at the sixth of the six commandments that deal with our relationship with man. It's also the last commandment of the Ten Commandments. And it is, thou shalt not covet. Or, we can just say today, and what we're going to be talking about today simply, we're going to be talking about envy. Um, I'm guessing I hit an arrow on this. We'll see. There we go. I like that better. It looks good. So, this one's a little different from the rest of them. Or it seems like it may be a little different. Um, Because it seems to be the only commandment that specifically calls out what happens inside of us, in our heart. The other commandments seem like um, they put the spotlight more on the things that we do. But this one has more to do with what's inside of us. The other ones, you know, is, um, is thou shalt have no other gods before me, no graven images, don't take the name of the Lord in vain. Keep the Sabbath day holy. Honor your father and mother. Don't murder. Don't commit adultery. Don't steal. Don't lie. And of course, the last one, as we read, is thou shalt not covet the neighbor's house. Thou shalt not covet the neighbor's wife, nor his manservant, nor his maidservant, or his ox, nor his donkey, nor anything that is thy neighbor's. The Tenth Commandment, it just shines that spotlight on what we think about. And it's really important. God gave Moses... 
603 more laws. But of the 613 laws that God gave Moses, these 10 commandments plus 603 more, in the first five books of the Bible, nearly none of them focus on what we think about, like this one does for sure. But this 10th commandment does what? Um, it, it talks about what we think about because what we think about fuels what we do. I mean, you can be sitting on the couch and get to thinking about that ice cream in the refrigerator and you're going to go get it. And unfortunately, we've had all these sweets around the house and that tow house pile that was sitting in the microwave. I got to thinking about this morning because my mind, I'm like, I've, you know, we've had this thanks this Christmas and I've, I've gained four or five pounds with this last week and since the tornado, I've been, I got thinking about it. I, like, I, I went to bed last night. I'm not going to eat nothing. All right, I'm just going to wait till we get done with the church tomorrow and then we'll eat and I'll, I'll feel better. And I got to thinking about that tow house pie that she made. It was so good. And the banana pudding. And lo and behold, I thought about it long enough, Brother David, I went and got tow house pie and put, pie and put some banana pudding on top of it. <laughs> and it tasted really good. Uh, but you take three of the top ten of these of these um, commandments they make national news every day people steal because they covet somebody else's stuff we see it every day on the news people commit adultery now we don't see that as much but we, we hear about it well so and so you know getting a divorce or this and doing that but it's usually because somebody's coveting somebody else's spouse a lot of cases, people murder because they want somebody else's stuff or somebody else's spouse. Coveting is it's weighty. And if we can keep this commandment, most likely we're probably going to be really well on keeping all the rest of the nine. It's almost like the rest of them, they, they're very contingent, connected to what we do with this coveting. And it's not wrong to want. It's not wrong to crave. It's not wrong to like or desire. It's wrong to covet. And coveting is stronger than wanting. If you want some tow house pie um, with some whipped cream on it, it makes it really good. And put some M&Ms with peanuts all around on, on the side, and you want to invite me over, I'm going to come eat it with you. But if Corbin's got a tow house pie, and he's eating it, and you come rip it away from him, you've crossed the line. Because that's, that's that line between craving and coveting it. And according to one scholar, coveting means to want to the point of seeking to take away and own something that belongs to another person. There's nothing wrong with me saying, I like your car or your house. Nothing at all. There's nothing wrong with me even saying, I wish I had a car or house like yours. But, you know, it should motivate me to study harder, work harder, save harder, that I can get something like that in an honest way. And there's certainly nothing wrong with saying, um, there, there, I mean, there's something wrong with saying, I like your spouse. I wish I had yours. We don't do that. But if all I think about, if something is all I think about, that, that becomes a coveting spot. It causes, it causes me to steal stuff. It causes people to take other people's spouses. It's coveting. 
we we may never read the ugly headlines that a man is sentenced to 15 years for coveting, but it's still sin. Now, we'll, we'll read a man spend 15 years for killing this man's wife or this man because he wanted his wife, you know. But it, that started for coveting. We won't read the coveting part of it. And if you search online for the news headlines about coveting, you're not most likely going to find one. I actually done it today. A uh, person goes to jail for coveting. I, I couldn't find it. <laughs> but if you search the headlines for murder and adultery and theft and stealing, all this kind of stuff, you're going to sit there for a while and you're going to read all these headlines because there's plenty of it. But all that comes from, most of the time, coveting. And coveting is like, you know, like some wild animal out there, a lion or tiger or whatever. It's really cute. But when it grows, it can kill you if you play with it long enough. And there are some headlines that we can find about coveting, though. And the first one I'll talk about here today that is just a prime example of this is 2 Samuel 11. Uh, it's, the, it's the only stain we find on David, a man after God's own heart, his spotless record, but it's a deep, dark stain in his life. And David, the red-headed teenager, they went running across the, the field and, and ended up taking Goliath's head off and killing him. David had a very stained spot on his in his life because of coveting. And, you know, David, after he killed the giant, all of a sudden they began to take tambourines and make their cheers. King Saul has slain his thousands. David, his ten thousands. Almost like overnight, David, this shepherd, became David the hero. But the current king, Saul, wasn't singing David's song. He didn't like it. He tried to kill David. We probably know the story, but let me go across today in case anybody listens to it later that don't. Um, it seemed like he tried to kill David several times, but God protected David every time. And not only God protected him, but the men that David had put together, they were protecting him. King Saul was so jealous. He finally caught up with him. He drove him to insanity, and King Saul kinged himself, and after, or killed himself. So after... More than a decade of running from his, for his life, David was free. David was king, finally. One minute, he was Israel's most wanted. And the next minute, we find David as king as Israel. And King Saul's last day on the job, we see recorded in the last chapter of 1 Samuel. And then King David's first day that we see recorded as him being king is the very first chapter of 2 Samuel, the very next chapter. Now we find David living the dream. He was godly. He was happy. He was happily married. He was wealthy. He was king for years. He was very popular. Why everybody liked David. David had everything a man could want until one day he woke up. Uh, you know, kind of like some of us, we wake up, oh, he's scrolling his Facebook feed, you know. Israel was... Um, at war with Ammonites, but they were defeating the Ammonites with ease. And David thought, you know what? I'll let them go fight this battle without me. They can handle it. I'll just stay home. I'll continue to scroll, watch YouTube videos. 
You know, you ever get watching YouTube videos about cats? You can sit there for hours watching them funny cats and dogs. One night he couldn't sleep. He got out of his room. He went out to the roofs. At that time they had roofs that you could walk on a lot, especially like his, you know. And he probably went back and probably was thinking about all of his life, about how God had blessed him. How he went from a shepherd to a fugitive to being king. But he realized that God had blessed him so much and he had been so good to him. And no doubt, I wonder, I just have to wonder if he looked and said, who is she? My personal opinion, he knew she, he, he knew who she was. It was Uriah, one of his mighty men, one of his mighty 30 men's wife. He knew who she was. But he spent too much time thinking about her. And it's one of them times, you know, it was probably dark, but still light enough to see a woman bathing. He probably knew her habits. David should have known better. David should have done better. David didn't need another woman. He had, he had wives that he just needed to love them. He could have snapped his fingers and had anything he needed. But instead, he snapped his fingers and told somebody, go get her. She was the daughter of Eliam. And as I said, Uriah's wife, one of his mighty men. And I wish somebody could say, David, this is a bad idea. She's married. You're married, David. What in the world are you thinking? That was the whole problem. She didn't, he didn't stop thinking. No doubt, maybe Uriah probably said, hey, David, this is my wife, Bathsheba. And the Bible proclaims in Samuel 11, 2, 2 Samuel 11, 2, that she was very beautiful to behold. So obviously she was very pretty. The Bible wouldn't put that there. But probably the first time he met her, he got to thinking about it. He realized that they lived not too far away from eyesight of the, of the, the king's castle and he probably figured out her patterns and realized, oh, she's going to be bathing. And he couldn't stop thinking about it. And he found himself in a place that he should not have been. And nobody stopped him. He didn't stop hero David. And he brought her home. Yes, ma'am. Yes. Yeah. He was on his roof and she was bathing on, on uh, hers. He said, go get her. Bring her here. That didn't happen overnight. No doubt, Uriah being one of his mighty men, he had done seen her, knew how pretty she was. But that doesn't matter. No doubt, he'd probably give her the tear of the castle. And I've often wondered if there was something on her side too there or she just felt like she didn't have a choice because he's king. It doesn't matter. David, the one who instigated it, Spent the night in the palace, and a few weeks later, hey, I've got a baby coming. <laughs> now what's the king do? He figured out she's pregnant. Uh, what can I do? I can't admit it. I'd be ruined, you know. What am, what am I going to do? And everybody's going to start talking. He's just thinking, you know, he's got out of so many things. But how do I get out of this one? I know. I'll just bring Uriah home. He's a war. I'll bring him home. And 
give him some furlough time and just say, hey, you're a good soldier. I appreciate what you're doing. I'm going to bring you home for a while. Go be with your wife. He's trying some way to make it look like it's his baby, not his. I know we may know the story, but just for the sake of what we're talking about today. And, but, you know, when she says, hey, I'm pregnant, everybody think, daddy, come home. I'm out of it. But, you think, well, nobody's going to find out about it. But here we are 3,000 years later talking about it because it'll get you in trouble. He came home. Just to go through it quickly, he wouldn't go back home. He says, no way I can go do this. My wife is there, but my friends are out there fighting. And the truth of the matter is that should have been where David was at. And he wasn't. And he stayed there. They even tried to get him drunk, and he would not do it. So our hero writes a letter to Joab. How's the battle going? Put Hira on the front line. When it heats up, draw back and let him die. So we see this covenant has took him and made him have lying, killing, and adultery. And it's sad. It's very sad, but this we see so many people that find themselves in this place. David, righteous reign is overshadowed by the scandal that we see that happened in 2 Samuel 11. And it all started with a covetous look that turned into a thought that turned into adultery. And no wonder God wrote it in as one of the top ten, thou shalt not covet. And the story of David lets us know if we can learn anything that to the best it can still happen to them. And we have to be careful with it. And no wonder he wrote it in there. And you would think that kings after David would figure it out. But we see in the very next book, 1 Kings 21, we see another king, King Ahab. He was a world-class coveter. He was one of the worst. And he started off as evil, and he ended up as evil. <laughs> and he had everything he could possibly want as king. A lot like David. He had armies that marched his command. He could snap his finger. He could pick whichever cut of meat he wanted, however he wanted, how he wanted to cook, whether he wanted chicken, fish, or whatever. Whatever he wanted. He had it. But there was something beside of his castle that he wanted, and it wasn't his. And it was a vineyard, just a little vineyard. But he couldn't stop thinking about it. He had plenty of vineyards. The Bible lets us know that. But not at that location, right next to the palace. Doesn't get any better than that, but the owner of the vineyard was a righteous man named Naboth. And Ahab walked around it, he, he looked at it, he wanted it, but it wasn't for sale. But Ahab did do the right thing. He went to Naboth and he offered, hey, how about I give you another vineyard in place of this? One that's better than this one. Or I can just buy it from you straight out. And so far, he's good. He's safe with what he's doing, the way he's handling it. And that, that would be no different than me coming up and saying, hey, that's a nice vehicle. I'll, I'll give you this much for it. I'll trade you mine for it. That was no different than that. And that's what I need to do right now because I'm down the vehicle. My vehicle's down, so I have to buy a new one. But I'm not going to do what Naboth does. <laughs> but Naboth shook his head and said, look, I, I appreciate it. I'm, I'm glad you like our vineyard, but this has been in my family for generations, and I'm sorry, it's just not for sale. Not for sale. Ahab went back to his home, his nice, fancy home, 
depressed, goes lay down the bed and begins to suck his thumb in his fancy bedroom he had, no doubt, pouting. When they brought him his food, he wouldn't eat his food. Somebody went and told his wife, Jezebel, what's wrong with you? I can't have Naboth's vineyard. I want his vineyard. Well, you've got all kinds of vineyards, Naboth. Uh, uh, Ahab, I don't care. His is right there. I want it. But when his wife, Jezebel, came to see what's wrong. Now, here's the thing with Jezebel. Ahab was bad. But Jezebel made him look like, Ahab looked like a church deacon. Because she was really, really bad. And he, he told her all about this vineyard he wanted but couldn't have. And Jezebel said, don't you worry about it. And she come up with this horrible, horrible plan and plot. And she was going to get this for her husband. So she slid into Naboth's office, got his signet ring, wrote letters to all the elders and nobles and said, who, who lived there in Naboth's area, and sealed them with King Ahab's ring. Said, go proclaim a day of fasting and seat Naboth in a prominent place among all the people. But I want you also to get two other people close to him. And let them bring charges that he's cursed both God and the king. And take him out and then stone him to death. You find that in 1 Kings 21, 9 and 10. And they did exactly what the king, which wasn't the king, was the queen done. And they got Naboth to come to court. Not even realizing he was being subpoenaed for a, a court appearance. And, and they made charges against Naboth said he cursed God and the king and most people would think it'd be easier to believe anything any crazy thing but to believe that this righteous noble Naboth would do such a thing to God and the king but nobody testified on Naboth's side and they convicted Naboth and sentenced him to stone him to death and he was dead Naboth died because King Ahab coveted it and I doubt if any of us has lost sleep over the fact that we don't have a vineyard our neighbor's got. <laughs> I'm sure of that. But God did give us a checklist in this Ten Commandments that tells us things that we're not supposed to covet. Not the house, not the spouse, not their servants. We think, what's the big deal? We don't have servants now, and that's fine. But the servants, number of servants was a status symbol. So we can relate that to some number of cars, maybe, or a number of whatever. Animals. Now, if somebody's got a bunch of dogs and cats, I don't covet them because they get on my nerves in my house. If you got them, that's fine. I'm all right with that. But, but uh, there it was a status symbol also. And that's how they made their living. But the New King James Version reads, nor anything that is your neighbor's. So... In case your neighbors, um, you're not interested in their house, spouse, their, all their other stuff they have, well, anything else they have in their house, they just anything they got, you know, their, their full wooler, their lawnmower, whatever the case. He, give us, he, he gives this checklist and said, anything that's your neighbor, don't, won't, don't, don't covet that. And we look at covetous, it's, we see it, it ranks pretty high on the scoreboard of what's bad. 
Mark 7.22 and Romans 1.29, Jesus and both Paul list covetousness right along with adultery, fornication, and murder. So you read Mark 7, 20, 23, it says, What comes out of the man, um, what comes out of a man that defiles a man, for from within, out of the heart of man proceed evil thoughts, adulteries, fornication, murders, thefts, covetousness, wickedness, deceit, lewdness, evil eye, blaspheme, pride, foolishness. All these things come from within and defile a man. And even Paul said, and even they did a lot like to retain God in their knowledge, God gave them over to. Uh, this is not from the King James Version, different version here, debased mind to do those things which are not fitting, being filled with all unrighteousness, sexual immorality, wickedness, covetousness, maliciousness, full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, evil-mindedness. They are whisperers. Covetousness ranks right there with murder. Paul, in Colossians 3 and 5, called covetousness idolatry. When we begin to serve our money and stuff, and relationships before God are right next to God, God said, look, it's become covetousness to you. Covetousness is fueled by just old-fashioned greed. Really, that's all it is. It is a drive and desire to always have more. And this generation right now is driven by that, that prestige. You know, you've got to have the next newest phone coming out. I mean iPhones, new ones come out usually every two years. It seemed like it. And even though you've got an iPhone, I don't know what we're up to right now. I've got an iPhone 8. I don't know what the newest one is, but if, even though you've got an iPhone 10, it's not cracked, it's working fine, it's up to date with all this stuff, but the new $1,000 iPhone 11 comes out, you've got to have it. That becomes covetousness. And the thing is, we ask the poorest or the richest how much money is enough it seemed like somebody's always saying just a little bit more. How much per hour is enough to be making? It's always, I need a little bit more. And as Christians, we've got to be so careful not to be trapped by this deceitfulness of riches and the cares of this life. Jesus said it well in Luke 12 and 15. He said, take heed and beware of covetousness. For one's life does not consist of the abundance of things he possesses. W one more story to go along with this. And it's actually... In the very next book, Second Kings, the book of Samuel, Second Samuel, First Kings, and Second Kings. It's almost like the Hall of Shame for those who deal with this tenth commandment. No doubt, we all heard of Prophet Elijah and his protege, his disciple Elisha, but not everybody is as familiar with Elisha's protege, Gehazi. Gehazi was right there when Elisha prayed and God brought back that boy from the dead he was there when Naaman the great Syrian general came knocking at the door no doubt he probably answered the door to Naaman and Naaman came as a to Elisha as a leper but he left healed his skin when he left was just as smooth as a baby he didn't know how Elijah did it, but he was glad that Elijah had helped him become whole again. And Naaman, he was rich. And he wanted to share his rich wealth with this poor prophet because he probably walked up to a shramshack house. Probably even thinking when he walked up there, how in the world is this guy going to help me be healed? 
But because he was healed, it added years to his life. And he offered, he said, let me pay you, Elisha, for healing. Elisha wasn't going to take it because he knew that he wasn't one done it. God done it. And Naaman wouldn't take no for an answer. And he pressed him. He pushed him. He said, come on, let, let me give you money for, for helping me be healed. But Elisha would not do it. But Gehazi, he couldn't believe what the older prophet and much wiser prophet was telling Naaman. He didn't want any of his money. But as they left, and Naaman took off down the road, Gehazi, no doubt, standing there thinking, I cannot believe we're standing in this shack of a house, and he wants to give us something, and he wouldn't take it. And no doubt, he probably thought about it. He may not want it, but I want it. We could use the money. We could fix, we could fix the roof. We can buy a new roof. We can just get a new house. And 2 Kings 5 and 20 reads, As the Lord lives, I will run after him and take something from him. And he did. Gehazi chased him down. And when Naaman seen him, he came off the chariot to greet him and said, What do you need? And that's when Gehazi's covetousness gave birth to lying. Oh, there's a couple of prophets that just come into town after you left, and, and we didn't have anything to give them. Then he takes and throws his master, Elisha, under the bus and says, Oh, yeah, and, and uh, 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 Elisha, my master wanted me to catch up with you and see if you still, that offer's still good. Two commandments broken, one moment. It was not Gehazi's best hour, no doubt. But Naaman loaded him up, and he was happy to do it because he was happy to be healed. He had just been healed of this disease. And as far as he was concerned, no price was too high to give him. So he gave him over 200 pounds of silver, gave him some new outfits. It said one scholar estimated that the 10 talents of silver and the 6,000 talents of gold, plus all the garments, could have been valued today as much as $1 million or more. So he gave him a lot. And when Gehazi got back, he took the gold and the silver and stuff and he hid them in a the house and he went and found Elisha. And Elisha asked, he said, where'd you go, Gehazi? And no doubt he's thinking, how did he even know I left? And the Bible says, he said, nowhere. The King James Version puts it this way. Thy servant went nowhither. <laughs> I didn't go anywhere. And Gehazi wasn't going to tell him anything, but Elisha told him everything. He told him how Naaman had came down from the chariot and gave him all that stuff that he just hid. Might not have heard of Gehazi because he didn't have that powerful prophetic ministry like God probably had designed for him. Elisha cursed him with the same leprosy that God had just healed Naaman from. And Gehazi died as a leper. Because he let covetousness get to him. The price of his ministry, his relationship with Elisha, his mentor, his, his health, and eventually his life, all for that $1 million or whatever it was in that time. Surely it's not wrong to want more money. We all are going to be there. But Gehazi thought the silver and the, the garments, they thought they belonged to him, but they didn't. 
They belonged to Naaman and maybe Elisha, but not Gehazi. But Gehazi couldn't stop thinking about them. He was willing to sacrifice his own integrity and his mentor's reputation, all for the altar of greed and covetousness. I hope that we're not there in the day after Christmas or even Christmas as you maybe would scroll through Facebook feeds and social media or look over at your neighbor's house. It makes it a lot easier to covet your neighbor's stuff because they don't have to be right at your neighbor's house no more. They just they post it on social media. And we can see, well, so-and-so got a new car. I got a new house. Or, hey, look at that. Yeah, look at that 70-inch screen TV or that whatever it is, you know. What is it that we've been thinking about that we can't stop about thinking about? And we're all there at times. We've got we to gotta learn where to cut that off. And I'm there right now because our car is time and change. Probably, I think it's broke. So um, it's, we've had it eight years, and I'm not going to put money into that, that engine Unless I put a new engine in, time I do that, I'd be better off getting another car. So, we're thinking about that. And I don't want to get to that place where I realize, oh, I've got to keep up with somebody else. I just need something to get me back and forth where we need to go. But is it that car or the house? When you, you may look at your house and think, well, I don't got... Maybe it's a, a move to something or maybe your spouse and you're having issues and you're thinking, well, their relationship or somebody else's job or somebody's lifestyle or somebody else's life, period. Do we want just a little more so much that we're willing to sacrifice? I don't want to sacrifice my integrity to get anything that I don't need. I don't want to, I'm here, you know, I I don't want to end up thinking, oh, I've got to get this kind of car where I have to work more overtime or have to sacrifice other things that could go to the kingdom of God because covenants will cause us to work longer than we should and separate us from our God and from our family. When will more be enough? And I don't want covenants driving me so far that I'm willing to gamble away or stuff that we need or even lose my marriage and, and maybe... This may not be where everybody wants me to go, but it's, it's really important because somebody says, well, where's, where's that, where does gambling fall in the scope of the Bible? It falls in the, the branch of covetedness. Brother L.J. Harry writes in his book that most of this um, series has come from, he said, he said, I saw the most fitting picture of gambling one day as a, at a gas station. There was a man scratching off lottery tickets over a trash can. He scratched one, not a winner, and threw it away. Scratched another, not a winner, and threw it away. Scratched another, not a winner, threw it away. Over a trash can um, because he didn't expect to win. Oh, your little faith. Why spend the money to play the game if you don't expect to win? And that's kind of a fitting thing there. And I know this may be an iffy subject with, with some thinking, well, it's not that bad. But covenants can drive some people to, to that point of gambling and it's a quick way to get rich without having to do work. And there's a lot of those out there. It's not just scratching tickets and pulling um, handles or guessing on some card or 
whatever. Some people win, but most don't. One man said to his friend, of those big, beautiful casino boats, he said, they don't build those boats on money people win. And if we're tempted to, you know, whatever it may be, play the lottery, some quick get-rich scheme out there where it's going to take away, we've got to remember that the Tenth Commandment is, thou shalt not covet. We've got to remember that life isn't all about money. So we should keep ours. Let them keep theirs. We need to keep our integrity, keep our work ethic, and stay clear of anything that's going to gamble on this life. Covetedness, it, it's that lie that if we have just a little more, we'll be happy. And sometimes it's a fine line between wanting and coveting. It really is. But the consequences of crossing that line is very severe. I mean, it's, it, it'd be a different, like we talk about King David, it's a big difference there with realizing, oh, Bathsheba's, she's a pretty woman to the point of, I wonder what she does look like without her clothes on. I wonder how it would be if me and her was in a relationship to versus, well, I'm happy for Uriah having his beautiful wife. Yeah, he had, had plenty at that time. I don't. And we see his son Solomon. I mean, 300 wives, 700 concubines. And almost you read it the scripture, the best that we can tell, he had everything and all the wisdom and it still wasn't enough. And all of his wisdom that he shared with us, it almost seems like, looking at the scriptures, that Solomon may have died lost. If covetousness has a villain, who's the hero? If, well, let's put it this way. If covetousness is a villain, who's the hero? It should be contentment. Be content with who, with what, and with where you are. A testimony, what a testimony we could be able to say as Paul said to Timothy, 1 Timothy 6 and 8, having food and clothing, with these shall be content. With these, we shall be content. As long as we're clothed, we're fed, let's be content. Not, let's just make a covenant. Let's, let's make a pact that we're going to be content. We may wish we had more square feet in the house, more better vehicle, but I don't want none of that stuff to drag me away from the people and the possessions that I do have. As I sat, I took a picture of our Christmas tree with our gifts and stuff, and we was very blessed, and we planned for it. I mean, we uh, used to, when I was younger, dumber, <laughs> we'd go do credit card debts and all that, and now we plan for it, so um, it's budgeted in, and we don't go in debt for nothing like that. They took a picture of what we had in front of the, their tree. Everything was paid for. I mean, and we didn't cause nothing else to go without, but thinking, gosh, I'm blessed. And then I thought about, but I'm sitting in a house. I'm not in a hotel like some people in my area. Tornadoes took their home. Christmas, they already bought. 
And I'm blessed. And I'm thankful for it. But we need to hold tight to the people and a little less to the possessions. In closing this today, if we must covet, Paul gave us an out for covet. He said, covet earnestly the best gifts. If we feel the need to covet, then we need to covet to be close to God and used by God to make disciples in his glory. Not about us and our stuff. The first and last Ten Commandments. The first and last of the Ten Commandments are beautiful. Like bookends. To remind us it's really all about Jesus. It really is. Lord, help us. We love you. We thank you so much for your blessings. Thank you for the opportunity to be in the Lord's house today, God. 